This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. Good morning, everyone, and uh, uh, welcome to a couple of North Carolinians, or at least I see one, <laughs> um, two, and anyone else who's out of town. It's been a very, very challenging week, and uh, I hope everyone is safe and at least warm and has some access to water. Um, I had my first full shower last night in a week, <laughs> and the mail truck just pulled up. So I feel extremely grateful for the everyday things that we take for granted so much. Um, and it's really great to see so many people, even though I can't see all of you at one take. Thank you for, thank you for coming this morning. It's, it's always encouraging to be with the Sangha. I want to uh, start by saying, um, start the talk, but by saying that uh, somehow without actually planning to, you know, without making a conscious uh, practice committee <laughs> decision, Austin Zen Center seems to be having a kind of mini series of talks on the forms or rituals of Zen practice. <laughs> so um, I had decided to, to give this talk um, and, and Tim had a, a similar idea actually, you know, independently for a talk two weeks ago on the challenges and opportunities of formal practice. And I missed that talk because I was out of town and I haven't had a, an opportunity to hear it. So, um, I hope that I have something of interest to say <laughs> for those of you who heard Tim's talk. Um, I have a feeling we probably think alike on, on some matters related to this topic. And then um, as, uh, as our Eno said, next week we have Cohen Franz, who is the uh, head teacher at, um, I think it's called Thousand Harbors uh, Zen Center in Halifax, Nova Scotia, and who uh, trained for years in Japan and is very, very um, steeped in the particularly Japanese, I want to say, I don't want to say authentic, but I want to say really formal <laughs> forms of Zen practice. And he is going to talk about how uh, we as uh, mostly not priests and not monks, not in a monastery, um, can relate to them and practice with them. So. Uh, welcome to talk number two in our unplanned mini-series on Zen formal practice. The title of my talk references a, a fairly long and, and subtle um, essay by Dogen, our Japanese, medieval Japanese founder. And the title in Japanese is Gyo Butsu Igi. Um, unfortunately, when I hear the word Igi, I always think of Igi Pop. Um, <laughs> but that's not what is referenced here. Um, gyo means to practice or to act, to, to engage in action. Uh, butsu is Buddha. It's the Japanese way of saying Buddha. Yui um, means dignity or dignified. And gi means ceremony or formal attitude or behavior. This is according to uh, the uh, two translators of um, the Shobogenza, Nishijima and Cross. 
And um, this essay title has been translated uh, in various ways into English, into somewhat more uh, kind of natural English as, uh, for example, the awesome presence of active Buddhas, you know, trying to get these terms into something um, that makes some sense in English. Um, I like this somewhat free rendering of the awesome presence of active or of practicing uh, Buddhas. Um, in this essay, near the beginning of it, um, Dogen says, and this is uh, the Tanahashi translation, because active Buddhas manifest awesome presence in every situation, they bring forth awesome presence with their body. Thus, their transformative function flows out in their speech, reaching throughout time, space, Buddhas and activities. Without being an active Buddha, you cannot be liberated from bondage to Buddha and bondage to Dharma, and you will be pulled into the cult of Buddha demons and Dharma demons. <laughs> so um, this is quite a quote. It goes on like this for pages. I want to emphasize here that what Dogen really points to strongly right from the beginning is activity and the body. Um, and that really is kind of the theme that I have for today, but I, I will talk and I am going to talk about um, Zazen as well. Um, so what is this dignified behavior, this awesome presence, however we want to uh, translate these terms? What is the ceremony of action Buddha? Right, action Buddha is my superhero. So I'll come back to Gyobutsu Igi later in the talk, but in the meantime, I'm gonna talk about some uh, other things. So I think everybody who's been practicing Zen uh, for any period of time, or even who comes to Zen uh, with just an aspiration to find out what's, what it's about, an aspiration to meditate, um, everybody knows that especially Soto Zen is said to emphasize Zazen. Uh, we usually translate that as Zen meditation. In fact, people um, usually start by coming for meditation instruction, which we offer and which every Zen center I know in the United States offers. Um, and we place a great deal of emphasis and value on this practice. It's our central core practice. So sitting meditation is also sometimes called shikantaza, which is often translated as just sitting. Right, you know, and doing nothing else is kind of the uh, what's implied in that, just sitting. But it might also be translated more literally, again, as exclusive, which is what shikan can mean, exclusive focus or focus on, right, which is ta, exactly sitting, za, shikan taza, exclusive focus on exactly sitting. And as many of you know, in the lineage of Shohaku Okumura, whom I, I greatly respect, I want to stipulate that, this emphasis on just sitting, on uh, sitting, you know, as the core practice, is taken to what we could <laughs> consider an extreme. Sitting 50-minute periods of zazen, 18 of them a day, with no service, what we call service, no bowing and chanting, 
no dokusan or, or practice interview um, or speaking of any kind. There's only breaks for meals and an hour of work practice and the rest of the time is just sitting period after period, 50 minutes. <laughs> I've never done it. Uh, I've never done a Shohaka Okamura style um, retreat, I have to say. But we in formal practice and kind of normal everyday practice, we do engage in chanting um, in a lots of activities, right? Which have very specific ways to do them. Um, chanting, bowing, even approaching our cushion, um, specific ways to do which are very unfamiliar to us, especially in the modern West. So how to understand what might seem to be a tension between silent, still sitting and other forms of what we call practice or action. In Zen ancestor Dogen's early essay called Bendowa, or the wholehearted practice of the way, he actually seems to support this exclusive practice of Zazen. Um, we chant an extract from this essay, some of us uh, who are used to doing service, it's been a long time since we, we did the services we, we used to do. Um, some of you may know the, uh, the chant called Jijuyu Zamai, um, <clears throat> and it says the following. So this is Dogen, again, Ancestors and Buddhas who have maintained the Buddha Dharma all have held that practice based upon proper sitting in Zazen, in self-fulfilling Samadhi, that's what Jiju Yu Zamai means, in self-fulfilling uh, self Samadhi was the right path through which their enlightenment opened. In India and China, those who gained enlightenment have all followed this way of practice. This is because each teacher and each disciple has been intimately and correctly transmitting this subtle method and receiving and maintaining the true spirit. So this sounds like a very strong endorsement of sitting practice. Proper sitting in Zazen is the way. And then Dogen goes on and makes what uh, is a kind of radical statement. According to the authentic tradition of Buddhism, he says, this Buddha Dharma transmitted rightly and directly from one to another is the supreme of the supreme. And here's the money quote. From the first time you meet your teacher and receive the teaching, you have no need for either incense offerings, bowing, chanting Buddha's names, repentance or reading sutras. Just sit, dropping off body and mind. And you can go throughout, uh, through all of Dogen's writings and find other instances where he says similar things. So the question then arises, and especially for those of us who uh, encounter the forms and find them perplexing or impediments or uh, wonder what their function is, wonder if they're truly essential. Why in this Soto Zen practice, which, which Dogen brought from uh, China to Japan, do we also do all these ceremonies, right? Including all those things that Dogen says uh, in this particular essay, he says are unnecessary. You know, we do offer incense, we bow, we chant the names of Buddha, we do repentance and we read sutras. Now it turns out that this statement about not using these rituals 
actually originates with Dogen's Chinese master, um, Ryu Jing, or as we chant his name in the more Japanese way, Tendo Nyojo. But, you know, Dogen himself, as I said, talks about the importance or value of merit of doing rituals, right? He, he, he talks about two things that seem to be in contradiction. So why this apparent contradiction? And I think that for those of us who don't like the forms or service or see the point to it, or who think, you know, this is kind of arbitrary or a hindrance to newcomers finding their way to our sitting practice. You know, some of us might take some comfort in Dogen's pronouncement that you actually don't really need all that stuff, right? Um, you know, there are people who are really put off by robes and roles and titles. The question sometimes arises, why do we do these culturally Japanese things? Why do we wear, some of us, this Japanese style clothing? Why do we hold our hands in particular ways? Why do we chant in Japanese when maybe none of us understands what we're chanting when we chant in Japanese? Ritual may feel like an impediment to the real practice of just sitting. Now, as a recovering Catholic, I have a strong affinity <laughs> for these forms. Some, some people who br were brought up in uh, certain traditions with a lot of form run away from them, but I actually ran towards them when I came to Zen. I really have a, a great affinity for the formal ceremonies and rituals of bowing and chanting, and I value all the so-called forms of practice, um, including, you know, all the things that we do if we're at the temple, and which we really don't do when we're at home. Um, we can try, but it's very hard not to have the ritual spatial container for them to keep them up. But um, many of you will be familiar with these forms. Right? We bow as we enter the zendo. We bow when, he, when we cross in front of the altar. We bow to our seats and we bow away from them before we sit. We always turn around clockwise to face the wall, right? These are the embodiments of, these, uh, of uh, our movements, right? Everything we do at the temple has this ritual container available if we fully embrace those forms. And for those of you who have done longer retreats, whether it's an all-day sitting or a multi-day sashin, you know that, this, um, that these forms extend to eating, even to using the bathroom and more. You know, Dogen himself prescribed for his monks at Eheji uh, rituals and words to accompany the actions of things like washing your face and brushing your teeth, right? A complete world of ritual. So what is positive, helpful, and supportive about the forms? I'd like to start with that uh, kind of inquiry now. You know, there are many things we can point to, and you probably have heard a lot of these before. Um, one, time, one thing that I sometimes emphasize, especially with new people who say, why are we doing these things, um, is to bring up their function that to, it, in, the, these, these prescribed ways of doing things interrupt our stream of thinking and our habitual actions. And this is indeed one way to look at them. It's a kind of instrumental way, but it's still true, right? It's one way to appreciate or to begin to appreciate these forms, these ritual uh, actions. 
you know, bowing stops our usual momentum. Um, it interrupts our stream of thinking, um, our purpose to get from point A to point B, right? We, we enter the Zendo and we think, I want that cushion, <laughs> that one over there. But first we have to stop and bow, you know, and kind of give up our, our, act, our kind of goal. <clears throat> That's one way to look at them. You know, they're a form of mindfulness, right? They make us pay attention in ways that we might not otherwise. Um, bowing, because bowing is, a, is, is totally fundamental to Zen. Um, it expresses many things, including gratitude and respect. It breaks down barriers with others. It even breaks down barriers with things like the floor or the bowing mat. It makes us aware of our state of mind, or at least it does make me aware of my state of mind. It helps us to forget our small selves and to join with everything on an equal level and so on, right? We could go on for a long time about this. And all of these functions, you know, the way that these forms function are true and helpful, I think. Um, another tack, you know, if we were trying to sort of justify the forms would be to look at contemporary um, Western or scientific understandings of the effects of ritual or of any kind of prescribed bodily movement on the body and the mind. And there's a lot of work on this that, that one can read if you're interested on why some things that humans do and experience um, and what effects they have in the realm of what we call religion and also other, um, other kind of uh, habitual or not habitual, but, but prescribed activities, scripted activities across societies and time and space. You know, now some, of us really take almost a kind of delight in science that affirms some truth in Buddhism or anything we are interested in and want to be valid. Um, and I'm trained as an archeologist and recently I can tell you anthropologists and sociologists and cognitive scientists and neurobiologists have all been suggesting, you know, that there may be some evolutionary advantage or some, some uh, advantage to becoming the kind of societies we have become in religion, in the functions of religion. Um, on the other hand, we also have uh, the issue that, that focusing, especially in neuroscience, on the mind tends to neglect the body. It reduces our experience to uh, electrochemical processes and evolutionary advantage. So one approach that sort of bridges this gap between the material and what we call maybe more the spiritual is to highlight the mutual influences of particular cognitive abilities and embodied action, sociocultural patterns that are uh, evolved human properties that we come up with together in the company of other humans. The trend in the social sciences, at least, is toward considering mutual influences of brain, body, and social structure. But as I said, even this integrated approach might run the risk of a kind of dualism between body and mind, which Zen seeks to break down, because it still sees body and mind as separate, if dependent. 
but embodied religion, embodied religion, rather than just a, a set of beliefs and ideologies as expressing the interplay and inseparability of body and mind, I think has a lot to recommend it. These mutually shape and are entangled with each other. You know, one researcher uh, observed that even more than receiving an image like viewing a statue or uh, observing a priest doing something, that taking a position with the body affects the practitioner more than receiving a visual impression. And I think the more that we practice, the more we might find that to be true. Also embodied religion practiced together as we do it in a Sangha is a collective endeavor. It reinforces the relationship of individuals in the now of this place and time, reinforcing our experiences and our shared embodiment through gestures and movement, right? Um, one last quote in this vein, the process of embodiment in ritual offers the practitioner embodied orient orientations towards the world and towards the self, right? That is not a Zen teacher speaking, that's a sociologist. So how Zen asks us to do things together on signal with one body, one voice and one effort could be seen to be reflected in these more Western analytical ways of thinking about such phenomena. But still in 2021 in Austin, Texas, right? Why do we bow? Why not shake hands? Of course with COVID, we're not doing any of those things. Why don't we hug instead of bow? Why do we offer incense? Are they essential practices, these specific practices, especially the more elaborate ceremonies and rituals? Right? Why not just sit and practice plain and simple mindfulness always in whatever we do and however we do it? Why do these foreign medieval practices in 21st century America or anywhere? So from the point of view of tradition, of the tradition itself, from within the tradition that we are practicing in, the practices that Dogen enumerates as unnecessary in Bendowa, which I quoted at the start, are really ancient and shared among many cultures. Burning incense is not by any means limited to Asian culture or Asian religion. It's a sacrifice of something precious. We actually are offering a fragrance. It produces merit and it's considered to be a purificatory practice. And as Stephen Hine points out, Dogen closely links burning incense and prostrations into what amounts to one action. And you know, bowing itself has the connotation in Chinese and Japanese of uh, culture of saluting, of showing respect, of asking for help and of worship, of reverence. It also demonstrates if you get down on the floor, humility and submission. And prostration is also ancient and appears in other cultures, times and places, right? So these things are not limited to just Asian or Japanese culture or to Zen. And repentance ceremonies, which is something that Dogen mentions, go back to the pre-Buddhist Indian Sangha and are said to mitigate bad karma and to heal breaches within the Sangha. So all these things have very deep roots in human experience and the tradition continues as we practice it. 
Um, but still, the question often arises, is it time to let go of some of these things now? I want to take a, a detour into etymology because I'm speaking in English and we're talking about many uh, cultures and, and I'm, since I'm speaking about Zen, we are talking about Japanese uh, culture, traditional Japanese culture. So I want to look at the etymology briefly of a couple of words in English um, before I, I continue. Um, <clears throat> if we look up ritual and ceremony in English, we find out that ritual actually has a very straightforward etymology. It comes from Latin, it comes from the word ritus, from which we also get the word rite, like rite of passage. But Latin ritus means custom or usage, as well as a religious ceremony, right? It is, it is a way of doing things in that culture, in Roman culture. And it may come from an older root, meaning to count or to number and has the sense of putting things in order. And the order and the way of doing things is really important in Roman religion. So embedded in our word and our whole set of concepts around the word ritual um, is the idea of order. And ceremony, the word ceremony might come from Latin or maybe uh, another ancient language of Italy, Etruscan. And it's a little obscure. It, it cut the word. Uh, the word's root is chirimonia, um, <clears throat> which means something like holiness, sacredness, and awe. So we're coming back to Gyobutsu Igi gradually. The word holy in English itself does not have a Latin root. The word for holy in Latin is sanctus. Holy comes instead from a Germanic root. And the word holy is uh, at its heart means whole, uninjured. And from that we get health in English. So these are some interesting connotations of words that I've been using and that come up quite a bit when we're talking about uh, ritual and form. And I think that this little excursion actually points to some interesting things. Ceremony and order in our, you know, language structure and in our in our uh, way of thinking, as expressed in English, include order and wholeness. And indeed, as Dogen says elsewhere, and as is emphasized by Reb Anderson and Tygen Layton, zazen itself is a ritual, and not just because of the formalities that we observe in the zendo. Um, and think that they are something we can separate from Zazen itself, from actually sitting and facing the wall. The instructions that Dogen gives in his essay called Fukan Zazengi, that we also chant sometimes, are actually the order of the ritual of Zazen. You know, it tells you to, how to cross your legs, how to arrange your robes, how to align your body. Um, I think we're all familiar with them. These are the instructions for a ritual of expressing the truth of our presence. The ritual of Zazen is not something that we learn as a skill or that we progress in. It is in Dogen's way of thinking and of teaching. It is something that we wholeheartedly engage in right away from the very beginning. In fact, what Dogen says in Fukan Zazengi is, and I quote, 
If you concentrate your effort single-mindedly, that in itself is wholeheartedly engaging the way. Practice realization is naturally undefiled. And we could, instead of using the word undefiled, we could say they are not different. They are not two separate things. And although Zazen is fundamental, in Dogen's detailed instructions for monastic life, Zazen is treated as one of a number of communal activities or ceremonies. So Zazen is a ceremony. Why then does Dogen reject rituals in Benda Law and in several other texts? And I think the key to that passage is actually kind of simple. And it's this, that Zazen is the great dynamic activity that embraces all activities. It excludes nothing and it includes everything. I think what Dogen is trying to tell us is that these other practices by themselves will not lead to awakening and without being within the great dynamic activity, right? So you can chant the names of Buddha all you want according to Dogen, and he has a very definite point of view <laughs> about these things, um, without Zazen, without this great dynamic activity as the foundation. Um, part of the Bendawa that I quoted earlier has a, uh, is a question and answer, a lengthy question and answer, where he's in dialogue with his sometimes skeptical listeners and this is what he says in the Q&A about chanting. He says, and I quote, to think that simply flapping the tongue and raising one's voice is a meritorious Buddhist act is utter fantasy. To be in the dark about the way of practice while perusing sutras is like a person who forgets to take some medicine because he is reading the doctor's instructions. There is no benefit at all to voice words incessantly like frogs who croak day and night in the paddy fields in spring is also without benefit. So this is kind of vintage Dogen when he's really feels strongly about something, he expresses himself very strongly. But understood in this way, for followers of Zen, ceremonies in their true sense are expressions of Zazen and the unity of practice and realization. And in my own experience, I have found that chanting sitting, study, work practice, all function together. It, it takes time, but, but I think that integration can happen. Sometimes a phrase from a text has suddenly clarified for me because I have chanted it for so long that it has become part of me and the meaning just opens when it's ready to. If I sit and don't chant, sometimes something feels missing. And it all becomes kind of one thing. Our ceremonies usually involve many people, unfortunately not for the last year, but normally this is how things work for us. Many people, and we need a certain minimum to ring the bells, to lead the chant, to strike the drum, and there's someone who offers incense and bows. And after many years of being present with this and participating in it, I can see how these forms enact the teaching. There is no particular person or persons. There's just this one person. There's one that happened, who happens to appear in each instance, co-creating the circumstances, responding to what is unfolding. The meaning of ceremony comes up with the action. And I can tell you that if I separate the action from the action, because my mind 
wanders for a moment, or I start thinking about what I'm doing and I start evaluating if I'm doing it well or badly, then I see a gap. The gap opens, I don't even have to look for it. It just opens up this gap between myself and activity. A self appears and the activity kind of recedes. And then I get the opportunity to immediately merge with activity again. And repeating these things day after day, like Zazen itself is facing the wall. For me, when I do the same thing over and over again, the unique and unrepeatable quality of each moment comes through in a way that is very apparent and helps me to see this in all moments in activity. You know, which is not to say that creativity and, spontane and spontaneity are excluded. You know, the things that can happen during service, right? I have dropped the incense during service when I've been officiating as a priest. I have forgotten to bow. <laughs> the doans, of which I have been one, miss a bell. The kokyo loses their place and the rest of us lose our place as well. And all these things are the point actually. The creativity in what appears to be the same thing every single time is in the response to such things. You know, spontaneity and even joy come up with intimacy, with everything that happens, right? If you can go with it. For Dogen, Zazen is not about future Buddhahood, making oneself into a Buddha, Zazen is the essential function of the Buddha we are. He emphasizes this in the essay that I started with, the Gyobutsu Igi. Again, Gyo means to practice or act. Butsu means Buddha. Um, Yui means dignity or dignified. And Gi is a ceremony or behavior, formal attitude or formal behavior. <clears throat> Dogen says, in Buddha Dharma, practice enlightenment are one and the same. Because it is the practice of enlightenment, a beginner's wholehearted practice of the way is exactly the totality of original enlightenment. For this reason, in conveying the essential attitude for practice, it is taught not to wait for enlightenment outside practice, since it is already the enlightenment of practice. Enlightenment is endless. Since it is the practice of enlightenment, practice is beginningless. That's a very Dogen kind of quote. The idea of action or of activity repeats over and over in this essay. Here and in his other writings, he is coming from the place of practice and enlightenment being one, activity and enlightenment not being separate. He says, Active Buddhas alone fully experience the vital process on the path of going beyond Buddha. You know, and this activity, I want to say, is not perfectly doing some ritual or doing it beautifully. Those things are extra. Those are the judgments we bring to what we're doing. And this is true even of the ritual of Zazen. Dogen says, totally encompassed by Buddhas, practicing Buddhas, are free from obstruction as they penetrate the vital path of being splattered by mud and soaked in water. Right? Buddhas are <laughs> splattered by mud and soaked in water, right? 
And so are we when we drop the incense or miss a bell or trip on the bowing mat. We are all included in mud and water. Tension Reb Anderson says that the act of formal sitting is a ceremony we perform. And he says that performing this ceremony heals any gap between our lives and the true Zazen practice of Buddha. Furthermore, the meaning of the ceremony comes up together with its performance, what uh, Reb calls a ceremony of inconceivable liberation. Complete presence in stillness is thoroughly intimate with what is happening without interfering or manipulating anything at all. So if we accept that Sazen is a ceremony and that practice, activity, and enlightenment are not two things, does this change how we might view service or the rituals that seem separate from meditation or extra or unnecessary? And by now you all know what I think. But I think a way to enter this question is to see that nothing is separate from practice, right? The expression of the Dharma, of the teaching is doing. And Tygen Layton, who is a student of, of Reb says, the point is to enact the meaning of the teachings in actualized practice. And the whole practice, including meditation, may thus be viewed as ritual ceremonial expressions of the teaching rather than as a means to discover and attain some understanding of it. So for us, as time goes on, rather than looking for the purpose, the meaning of the rituals, we see the rituals as an expression, an expression of the teaching. In Dogen's monastic regulations, Zazen is counted among the rituals the whole Sangha does that encompass not only the formalities, but rituals that include, as I mentioned at the beginning, drinking tea, brushing teeth, eating, and using the toilet. We could understand all of these everyday activities as the enactment of the Dharma and as no particular practice at all. Instead, as the great dynamic activity that embraces all activities. Commenting further, Taigen says, and I love this quote, fully experience your own experience, fully engage and express and perform and walk the walk of your own experience right now as you sit on your cushion, as you get up from your cushion to do walking meditation, as you get up from retreat to leave and perform the ceremony of your everyday activities in your ordinary life. Fully experience the vital process on the path of going beyond Buddha. And this, says Dogen, is clarity beyond clarity. So, and I'm concluding now, if it helps to know what the training functions of the forms are, you know, what neuroscience and evolutionary biology say, to have an explanation for what it all means, historically, socially, and culturally, it's all good. Even still disagree with or fall in love with the forms. Just don't separate from experience. At the end of the Jiju Yuzanmai, Dogen says, even if just one person sits Sazen for a short time, this Sazen is imperceptibly one with each and all myriad things and completely permeates all time 
so that within the limitless universe throughout past, present, and future, it performs the eternal and ceaseless work of guiding beings to enlightenment. Zazen is equally the same practice and same realization for both the person sitting and for all dharmas. He says, not only that, but each and everything in its original aspect is endowed with original practice, which cannot be measured or comprehended. And here I think we could substitute for practice. Every time we hear practice, we could say activity. And I take this to mean, although we depend on the three treasures and the forms of practice that are practiced by the community, that each of us has to do it. You know, it depends on me and on you. Only if you and I do it, does the teaching unfold here and now and extend throughout space and time. Expounding the Dharma with this body is foremost. It is the dignified presence of practicing Buddhas. And it is manifesting zazen at all times, in all things, with everything. Thank you very much. Comments, questions, objections? Hey, Charles. Yes, Rob. I really like this topic of what we might call the relationship between the mind and the body and have absolutely experienced this thing where what the body does influencing the mind. And I remember hearing a long time ago about, uh, we, we know the body is, can be an expression of what's going on in the mind. Like when, you know, if I'm running a race and I cross the finish line first, what am I going to do? Or when, when we win, yes, when we win, Sherry knows Sherry. <laughs> this is what we do when we win. But I was really interested to learn a few years ago that we can also use this, and I'm trying to put my hands up in the air here. This uh, actually induces a confidence-inducing hormone. So if you stand up like this and do a power pose, you know, for two or three minutes, it will boost confidence hormones in your body. And I remember like, I've done this like before job interviews and stuff like that to try and feel a little more confident. So, and I think that also, I've also like, I felt that happen with like bowing and, and Zazen and some things like that, where it really does have an influence on my, on my mind state. So thanks for talking about this topic. Yeah, thank you. I think I'm gonna to have to incorporate the power pose <laughs> into my daily routine. Yeah, in fact, um, there's, a, there's a Rinzai teacher that uh, has published now two books about Rinzai practice, which is, you know, Rinzai is the other school of Zen, uh, main school of Zen that has survived in Japan. And it's actually in Japan, it's a uh, less um, common, less commonly practiced, um, a form of Zen. Um, Soto Zen is, is the biggie in, in Japan. Um, but Rinzai is familiar to a lot of us from uh, books that we might have read, even if we've never encountered actual Rinzai practitioners. And it, and it is said to, to emphasize koan practice, um, you know, to, to, with these uh, kind of paradoxical stories that, uh, that are assigned to you by your teacher and you, you sit with. 
Um, and that's a, that's an exaggeration, just as uh, as I understand it. Um, just as it's an exaggeration to say that you know all all that Soto people do is sit. Um, but this particular American teacher who is based in Wisconsin, his name is Mado Moore. Um, he's written a book about the embodied practices of Rinzai that are not not the ceremonial ones, but are really yogic practices. And that some of what how he was trained was in various forms of martial arts, including uh, kendo, you know, uh, the way of the sword, and aikido. Um, but he says very strongly in this book that um, Zen is a yogic practice. And um, you know, I, I came to my very poor yoga practice late in life, um, but I, I think that that's true. And a lot of the postures that we take are asanas, actually, they're yogic postures, right? So this is, you know, Zen draws on many roots. It's a very complex thing that we practice. Um, and one reason I hesitate to chuck the forms um, is that it's, it is so old and there's a lot of wisdom in it. Um, and I think in particular, because it isn't the, uh, how do I want to say this? It isn't our home base, cultural home base in America. It means that it's, it's a way for all of us to feel the strangeness, you know, to kind of drop our own way of doing things because it is so different, but it, it takes a certain willingness um, to just say, this is just the way we're doing things. You know, we have, we have been offered this and gifted this by our Asian teachers who asked us to carry it forward, you know? And so maybe in a hundred years, you know, we'll be, we'll be in a position where we really know how to make it our own because Buddhism also takes on the cultural forms of every place it goes to across the world. But, you know, in the past it's taken many centuries and everything is hyper, hyper fast now and hyper connected. So, um, I'm justifying my position now, but <laughs> this is really the way I think. <laughs> Anyone else? Dave? Hi, Chiro. Thank you again for another lovely uh, Dharma talk. Thank you. One of the things that really strikes me about it is how um, it all comes back to Zazen. And Zazen is a ceremony is um, a great idea. It reminds me of um, one of the things that uh, we talked about, I guess it was a, oh, two weeks ago with Tim, um, where Tim was talking about bowing and it just occurred to me that um, just the thought I had was, oh, Tim compared bowing as a form to poetry forms. I think that's what it was, Tim. And it just occurred to me like, oh, a bow is a poem. And that was just an interesting idea to me. Um, and um, so I really like it all coming back to Zazen as a central component and the rituals and the ceremony connected to Zazen and Zazen being a ritual and ceremony. Um, and it made me think about when um, I started doing sitting practice, um, Seriously, my first uh, attempt at doing it seriously was about 10, 11 years ago. 
And, um, at, and if I think about where I was at that point, I thought that um, the challenge of doing Zazen was how am I going to do nothing for <laughs> 45 minutes or whatever it is? Um, how am I going to sit still for that long? Um, now I'm, I, I was a professional drummer, so I'm used to practicing something for an hour. Like I have that skill. I'm used to practicing for three hours, you know, I don't do that anymore. I used to. And, um, so in that regard, I was like, all right, this is kind of a cool little practice challenge. I'm going to try it. But from just like in day-to-day -day life, I was like lost in like, how am I going to do this? Nothing for so long. <laughs> but your talk has really made this connection for me about like, well, Zazen is this ceremony. Um, and it's also from a, maybe from a beginner's mind for me, it's nothing, it's emptiness. But then I really just clicked for me of like, oh, form is emptiness, emptiness is form. And that just was a light bulb moment for me. So thank you for that. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention, and uh, maybe there's something to talk about here. Maybe this is part three of the series. <laughs> um, but the thing I'm curious about after listening to you and Tim, I am curious about what does it mean to do these forms in our homes alone? In my case, in my bedroom office, because <laughs> that's different than doing it in the temple. Yeah. Um, when I'm sitting next to people and we're on the wall, that's so different than when I'm sitting here in my bedroom office, uh, looking at the wall. When I'm when I'm following uh, the form of um, putting my hands in. Shasso, I think it's called, um, uh, before the kinhin. Um, I'm like, it's just different when I'm doing it in my room with the camera off and no one can tell that I'm doing it right or whatever it is. So um, it's just so different when we do it at home. So some questions for me are, what does it mean to do these forms that we've talked about now in two Dharma talks? What does it mean to do them in our home? What does it mean for me to do a bow in my bedroom office is maybe a little more specific question. Um, so that's that's where that's where I'm going with this. Um, so thank you. Thank you for all of your comments. Um, I'll tell you that I am really the longer our our uh, our COVID isolation goes on, and then this week with no power and. Uh, you know, not able to join Zazen and actually too cold. I mean, really, I did not sit for several days. It was just too cold. I was really focused on, uh, so there was some sort of survival instinct, like, you know, go drink something hot. We have a gas stove, so we could at least prepare, you know, hot drinks and food, and then go find the warmest place with the cats, you know, who also were freezing. Um, so, you know, their circumstances are challenging. And there's a reason that, you know, we set up Zendos the way we do, you know, within certain limits, we, we have, we don't have a purpose built Zendo at Austin Zen Center and many American uh, Zen centers don't, we, we use adapted spaces, but there are certain things that we all kind of try to do, which is, you know, create the, the space where we face the wall and there's an altar in the middle 
and there's a bowing mat and we can you know use these forms and the and the space works together i mean the space supports the action um and there's a you know again going back to my former days there's a whole archaeology of of religion that looks at things like that the interplay of how space you know supports encompasses is you know the, the term of art these days is, is entangled with movement and activity you know there's always a focus in a temple or a ritual space whether it's an altar or a direction that everybody's bowing in or something right so th these are really old things and yeah when you're in your home office right now i'm looking at a wall which has two doors in it and behind those doors are the washer and dryer you know it's not like being in the zendo <laughs> it's just not um and it's hard to sustain it's really hard to sustain but i find that if i can gather my attention and my um vow you know to that to support this way of being and express the teaching through my body, my body mind, it helps me to at least keep up the basics. And you know, every day when we do service, I pull my bowing mat in front of the my Buddha and I bow, you know, I get, I get down and do those bows, even if I'm not in my full robes, because I feel like it's an integral part of starting my day, you know, um, so I think we can all just give ourselves a break, <laughs> you know, when it doesn't feel quite right. And also um, we can, you know, keep trying to express as much as we can the teaching. Yeah. Um, I think Andrew wants to make a comment, but I'd also like to ask Tim, could you, could you just say a word about bowing as a poem? <laughs> I think that's uh, very interesting. Um, sure, and and thank you so much, Toro. I, I want to um, confirm that I think your your talk uh, dovetailed well because <clears throat> I actually didn't talk so much about zazen, so um, that was wonderfully wonderfully kind of uh, fortuitous. Um, I think I was talking about forms in general and artistic forms, and meaning that if you have some rule or some standard or some kind of accepted way of doing things, um, it actually kind of leads us to some freedom that doesn't exist in a kind of, um, you know, a kind of aimless soup. So that, you know, the forms, the, the, the standard forms of poetry or the accepted kind of, you know, bow as we enter the Zendo, um, Kind of gives us a focus that kind of brings about that dynamic activity or that freedom from inside. Um, so I think that's sort of what I was saying, but I don't, I don't totally remember from two weeks ago. Yeah, thank you. I think um, I I found myself more able to engage in certain forms of artistic expression if I wasn't so self-conscious about the me part, like what I my creativity. So like traditional forms of dance where you learn the steps and do them with other people rather than just sort of, you know, hang it out there. I'm not a good dancer, but you know, it's the one way I can do it is just to follow a pattern and then find the expression, you know, um, through that way. And Suzuki Roshi said something I always liked, which is, you know, what, this is the hippie days when people showed up at San Francisco Zen Center in all states of attire and cleanliness and you know, hair and everything else. And he said, 
when you shave your heads and wear your black robes, I can see your true individuality. You know, when, when, and that's that sort of background of sameness I was trying to talk about. It's like doing the same thing every day rather than becoming boring or crushing your spirit or if you can, it's finding that freedom and noticing how it's always different. It's never the same. You can see it more clearly if you, as you, you know, continue to engage with it. So yeah, I think um, I like, I like that, Tim, thank you. Um, so Andrew, is he still here? <laughs> there it is. Yes. Hi, your hand is right up there. Hello. Hi. Uh, thank you for the talk, Toto. Um, it's wonderful. Um, I, uh, so I was, I was one of those people without power for three days, four days, three days, Ugh. four. Yeah. Was, um, and that entire time I didn't practice Zazen when I perhaps need it the most and maybe even the conditions would be most amenable than, than now. Um, but I just found it hard to, uh, to do the forms and everything. It seemed like a, an obstacle to me and it was easier to just sit around panicking. Um, so do you ever see the forms as like an obstacle to that where you, you just, you just can't bother yourself to do them and then as a result you don't do the sitting meditation at all i would have to admit yes <laughs> um you know i sat for a long time at home before i i was able to be in a place where there was a temple and my root teacher at the time said that she thought that was much harder than being cold and hungry in a monastery because you were with other people you know and everybody was in the same boat and you knew breakfast was coming right when you're in a three-day blackout you you know, you don't have any of that. You don't, you don't have the camaraderie and you don't have the schedule. Um, so yes, and I think it's, it's okay, right? To just say, this is an impediment to my sitting and I do wanna sit, so I'm just gonna sit down. I'm not gonna do the bowing. I'm just gonna sit down and I'm not gonna set a timer. You know, I'm just gonna sit here for 10 minutes and you know, one moment of Zazen says Dogen, you know, penetrates all space and time. So I don't think we should let the forms be an impediment. And, you know, sometimes in these days of COVID, I, I sort of make myself, you know, observe every form, like bowing to my cushion and all that. And it really steadies me. It really, you know, it's, it's that expression of the, of the teaching. So it, it, it can be helpful if you drop the thinking about how cold you are or how tired you are or how hungry you are, but these have been really extraordinary days in Austin, Texas. And, you know, it's like, I'm wiping the slate clean. <laughs> Start over. Thank you. Uh, I see, I just saw Karen and then Pat. Thank you, Choro. This is wonderful. Um, yeah, like Andrew, I definitely found it uh, challenging uh, this week. Um, and I, I kind of think that's okay too. I feel like um, there's still, it's still there. It was sort of like the forms are, they're still there going along and uh, you know, whatever else is happening, at least 
maybe I can watch some of the panic and other things, you know, um, this was an interesting version of that. Um, even not losing power, kind of constant feeling that it was about to go out. Um, so I think we can, you know, and I, maybe that some of the time I just tried to be with that as Zazen, as close as I got to Zazen of just being with what was coming up. Um, and I, but I also thought it was interesting that um, sometimes if you do like doing forms for a long, long time, they, they do get kind of internalized and then things will come up, you know, bits of chance will come up when I'm in dire straits, um, the, just the word Avalokiteshvara comes up for me. And um, it's kind of wonderful. And, and I found that um, Orioki forms are very uh, appropriate for uh, not having water. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and, and that it was a kind of comfort almost that, um, you know, okay, I know how to clean my bowls and not waste any water. And um, so, you know, in that case, that ritual kind of came back. So, uh, it, yeah, it was uh, an interesting week that way. So, yeah, uh, thank you for that. I, I guess the one other question that I had and um, was just that I've noticed when I first came to practice and I've had other people ask me too, I think it's, it's I don't know if it's a Western thing that we do, but um, especially when, when there are forms that are foreign or they're in a different, from a different culture, um, is that people have asked me, you know, well, like is, in some way they've asked, like, is there something magic, <laughs> right? And I remember the first time I went to a retreat and, and then did the forms, I felt kind of startled and alarmed, like, am I doing something that people think is, has some kind of magical thing that I, I don't aspire to? Um, and uh, so I, I just wondered if you've seen that come up uh, with, with people sort of thinking like, oh my God, something bad will happen if I don't do this right. Or, or I'm doing this so that something will, good will happen or you know, that it's some kind of ritual like that. Thank you for, for all of that. Um, you know, there are ancient forms of religion and the Romans practice this way that if you made one mistake, like one syllable off in what the priest had to say, the whole thing was invalid, mm -hmm. you know? So there's like this high, there can be this hyper uh, emphasis on um, getting it right you know, and, and that only if it's done exactly right is it efficacious in some way. Mm. And this is ritual as maybe a kind of manipulation, you know, trying to get things to, to work uh, in a certain way. And when you have state-sponsored religion, you know, you might have that, right? <laughs> um, and I think what we're talking about, it's not, it's not that Buddhism has remained completely apart from politics in its long history, but I think for, from the practitioner's point of view, um, it's not so much aimed at manipulating anything or magic, although it is kind of magical in the sense of, I think it's not something we can fully apprehend with our intellects, what happens. 
you know, Mary said, when we move together, our, you know, our, our brains synchronize. That's a part of it. She said that in the chat comment. Um, you know, that, 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 that's a kind of magic. You know, we feel it even if we don't understand it, even if we don't know anything about neuroscience, you know. Um, so that's, I think, why the emphasis on staying with our experience is so important. And if your experience is, I'm freezing cold and I cannot do this, stay with that experience. The great thing about being a Tassahara is that somebody knocks on your door if you don't get out of bed and says, we're all in the Zendo. Are you okay? Do you need anything? Well, then get up. <laughs> if you don't, you know, come and join us. And there's a tremendous support in that, which if you're freezing alone in your house with no water, isn't available, right? So it also, these moments also show us our interdependence, you know? They show us how Sangha functions, you know, when we can't be together. I could feel you all when I was able to sit, you know, like there, there were no people in many squares, but it was okay. It's like, I know you're there. <laughs> Uh, Pat, are you still, I can't see you right now, but there you are. Did you have something? Yeah, I just moved. My picture just moved for a little while there. I couldn't find myself. Um, well, I, I guess I just wanted to, thanks so much for this talk, Cheryl. It's been very, very helpful. Uh, and I just wanted to add uh, something that's maybe obvious to everyone, I don't know, but when I, uh, this, this idea of embodiment is, uh, I, I think, just so incredibly rich. And uh, I mean, when you think about what you're doing when you're sitting in the zazen, you're silent and you're upright. And uh, one other word there. Um, anyway, silent and upright and calm and um, so that is where you want your mind to be also, but a lot of times our minds aren't there, but our body can, much easier than our mind, our body can be there. It can be upright and it can be silent. And uh, it can be peaceful, it can look that way. <laughs> and uh, so that's helpful to other people to see that, even though inside you might be a, 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 a furnace, you know, of, of whatever is going on and so that's why I don't know for me I can't do zazen without the form I mean I can't lie down in bed and do it or just sit on the couch I, I have to have that form to do it and I'm also one of those people that couldn't do it also during the, the days that I had outages all I could do was think about staying warm but but if I were to do it I would have to have the form there to, uh, to help me, uh, to provide a framework. Thanks again for the talk. Thank you. Um, I do want to say one good thing about our Western practice is its inclusivity of people who are not young monks, young male monks, skinny, <laughs> you know, young male monks who are used to sitting on the floor. So, you know, I'm very grateful that as I'm getting older, I'm still able to sit on the floor. But one reason when we give Zazen instruction, we tell people how to sit in a chair or how to sit on a bench is to make that embodiment available to people who have to embody it in a way that is not the traditional full lotus, you know, sitting. And so I, I just want to kind of say that that's 
I think a plus in the way we've widened, you know, our um, our view about what the form is, right? It's being, you know, upright, finding what's upright for you. Yeah, but I mean, I have a preference for being in the form I'm taking right now. I admit it, and I hope that as I age or get injured, I can keep going. Okamura himself, after so many years of you know, 18 periods a day now sits in the chair. He cannot sit on the floor and he still sits. You know, for him, it's the upright sitting that's the most important. So I take that as my cue. Um, Liliana, I think, and then Debbie and Melanie, and then maybe we should, we should uh, go to breakout. So Liliana. Hi, Joe. Hello. Uh, also, sir, recovering Catholic, I can relate to your experience and I'm drawn and repelled in equal parts especially <laughs> at the beginning <laughs> but now more drawn and also have a background in anthropology so i appreciated some of your references and, and way of thinking about our practice and i wanted to just share uh, one of the more curious reactions i've ever had to form which was uh you know when i started meditation practice more formally, like uh, some seven years ago, I went to a retreat of the Wong Dharma Center in upstate New York. Mm -hmm. And it was a moving meditation one week retreat. And one of the uh, things we were gonna do one evening was bowing for like a hundred or 109 times. And I had made a new friend, this woman from New York. And for some reason, halfway or towards the beginning of it, we just thought it was the most hilarious thing ever. And we just started laughing uncontrollably. <laughs> I and mean, we were like teenagers just, or, 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 you know, just got a giggling attack. And we kept on doing it. And they were very tolerant and, and flexible and they didn't throw us out. And we just kept laughing and laughing and laughing. And then afterwards, we were just so light and relaxed and we slept great. And it was like, well, that was that. <laughs> yeah, so that's all. Thanks. Thank you. Um, there was a Wan Center, Wan Buddha Center near the Chapel Hill Zen Center. Um, and they their, their particular practice of Buddhism has many, many forms that are not Zen forms, but um, they incorporate music and all sorts of things. Um, and, and Korean Zen does that 108 bows. Like they do that before they sit. So, you know, it might cause you to laugh or, but it does cause you to drop a lot of stuff. <laughs> don't have a choice. <laughs> so, thank you. And they have the best food too. Ah. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Hi, Debbie. Hi, thank you for your talk, Choro. You're welcome. Thanks for being here. Well, first, I, I'm not, I'm here in North Carolina and have felt great compassion this week for all of you in Texas with your cold and lack of water and power. Um, the first time I walked into the Chapel Hill Zen Center, I was coming from California in the Vipassana tradition. I was assessing whether this was a cult. <laughs> Everyone was wearing black. And I was told both you, uh, Choro and Tim, you were both there. 
And I was told that there was a memorial service coming up in two weeks. And I thought, wow, they're already wearing black. And I remember <laughs> when I lived in Spain, uh, mothers and daughters would wear black for months or maybe a year if someone died. And I thought, well, maybe that's what they do here. And then there was all this bowing and chanting. And the, I was told, don't think about the forms, just do them. And I thought, ooh, that does sound like a cult. And uh, I know many newcomers that I've talked to since then um, have similar reactions. I was wondering, Choro, if you have a couple sentences that are helpful you found to say to new people when they're um, reacting like that. You know, this has been coming up here too in discussions um, in our practice committee and also, you know, in some of the talks, at recent talks. I haven't been present for all of the discussion, but I've heard about some of it and I've talked to some individuals. And this is just my view is to see as an invitation. It does look like a cult. If you're in North Carolina and people are hitting the floor, it looks like idol worship, you know, I-D-O-L worship. And there's a lot of resistance to that kind of thing. Um, also to the, the eyes downcast and the not smiling and the, you know, it does look like, it can look really dark and really unfriendly and um, like everybody's in timeout facing the wall, you know, it's um, and really extreme. So if I get a chance to talk to people or give Zaz an instruction and speak a little bit about the forms, I really try to say this is like, like Tim was emphasizing, a, an invitation to finding a kind of freedom from our usual ways of thinking about things, doing things. And actually, if you hang around a little bit, there's more joy than than it appears, you know, from the black and the, you know, the not meeting each other's eyes, you know. Um, but I, I think that's one of the great gifts that we have from our teachers, our Asian teachers of saying, yeah, put on this, put on the robes, do the forms, you know, you sew the rakasu, um, learn the chants, just, you know, just do it. Um, stop worrying about what you think, you know. <laughs> But it takes, you have to develop some trust. Yeah. And, and meeting people who are willing to, to squarely address people's fears or resistance and say, oh, yeah, I, you know, I remember when I first came here <laughs> is a big help. So thank you for, thank you for talking to people. And I remember uh, one time Joe Show was saying, it really doesn't matter if you enter the Zendo with your left foot first or your right foot first, but by having a practice of how one should do it, it can make you mindful. So you don't just waltz in. Yeah. Um, so I've, and I've found that helpful. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, so it's not like some magical thing by if you enter with, the left foot or the right foot, but it but it does force you to kind of think, what am I, you know, to just where am I? Rather than what am I doing, like where am I? Where is my foot? Where is this? What is happening? Yeah. Uh, Melanie, and I think we'll make you the last. <laughs> <laughs> I want to say um, one thing I appreciate about your talk today is is your care, um, and I think that. Um, words as form seem very important to you. And I appreciate that because you're very careful to qualify things that you say is not absolute or the same for everyone. Um, and I appreciate you mentioning 
uh, accommodating people who can't sit on the floor because I'm one of those people. Um, I have a form of arthritis and it makes it really hard for me to get up and down. Maybe I could sit, but uh, only for a second and then I would struggle to get up. Um, so I, I appreciate I appreciate the care that comes through in your words and how you explain things. Um, uh, I wanted to also say that, um, let's see, I'm looking at my notes here. Oh, with others, practicing with others. Boy, I sure needed a community when I came to the Austin Zen Center for the first time. And and I used to say very dramatically and probably with tears that, that um, coming to the Austin Zen Center saved my life, but I really actually think that's true. And by save, I mean, have a life worth living, truly. Um, and um, the other thing is about when you said something about how it's our response to the forms that uh, is so important. And I, and I even notice with people's response to your talk, you know, always I learn things from other people. And I always appreciate the comments from other people because they see something I never saw didn't think about, wouldn't have thought about, and learned something. And that happens with others. And um, so I wondered if you could say something about, it's our response to the forms, something more about that. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and I completely agree that uh, I learn from, from, the, from the questions as much as I do from preparing these talks. And I learn a lot from listening to other teachers respond to questions. It's really an important aspect, I think, of, of this practice that we do. So thank you. And um, I, if, if my words are helpful, that's all I'm interested in. So thank you very much, Melanie. You know, our response, I think our response to all of this changes over time. You know, so although we enter the practice as beginners and we are immediately practicing wholeheartedly, you know, it's like the first moment is the same as the last moment and we don't talk about progress so much in Zen, but there's change, there's change. And, um, you know, some of us are never gonna fully embrace or love the forms, but we'll do them and we'll find if we, you know, if we drop the um, resistance, you know, or just let, let the, kind of look at the resistance and say, I don't need this right now. Let me just be here with everyone um, and do what they're doing. Cause I want to be in this community you know, there's a sense of belonging that is supported. Call that a cult if you want, but, <laughs> you know, people go to cults because they want to belong. I, I happen to think ours is pretty benign, but anyway, um, you know, that, that, that being together and that feeling of the one body practice, which we each express, whether we're sitting on the floor or whether we're wearing robes or whether we're, you know, our minds are racing, we are together making this effort. And, you know, I think that is a, a really important aspect of this. And to just stay, again, stay open to experience, whatever it is, and notice when it changes or notice when resistance reappears. You know, sometimes it comes back up. Like, no, <laughs> I don't want to, no, I don't want to do this. <laughs> no, I'm going to hit the snooze button. No, but no, I'm going to do power. Power, yes. <laughs> You know, before Zazen, early, early, early in the morning at, at Tassahara, and, and the wake-up bell is at 3.50 in the morning, and the first period is at 4.20. I mean, it's really early. It's really dark, and, it, and it's cold. There are people in the dining room, in the dark, doing all kinds of things to get themselves, to get their energy up. People do Tai Chi. 
you know, people do some yoga, um, you know, people do Qigong as a, you know, I haven't, the power, the power thing is, you know, real, right? They just to kind of like, to, to kind of rouse their bodies. Um, so they don't just go right back to sleep when they, when they sit down at 420 in the morning, you know, and it's an hour or so of sitting. And then there's like a 40 minute service and then there's Soji. And then finally, like three hours after you got up, you eat breakfast. <laughs> Right. And it's great. It's wonderful. <laughs> We're in that <laughs> Yeah. It's easier actually, you know, in some ways than doing it on your own. Yeah. So thank anyway, you. Thank you all so much.